1987, the Nike shoe company was not the juggernaut that it is today. Its competitor, Reebok, tapped into the aerobics craze of the 1980s, and Nike was struggling to keep up. I won't ask you if you were around in the 1980s what your wardrobe was like back then. <laughs> well, that year, 1987, Dan Whedon, an advertising executive at a marketing firm very near Nike headquarters in Oregon, pitched a new idea to Phil Knight, who is the co-founder of the Nike Shoe Company. Whedon's idea was simple, but it's now iconic. It's that three-word slogan you know very well. Just do it. At first, Phil Knight hated this slogan, but Whedon urged Knight, you know what, Phil, just trust me on this one, okay? And he did. Nike went with it, and it paid off, literally. Nike soon began to roll out their Just Do It advertising campaign, coupled later with the budding ba rising basketball star known as Michael Jordan, and the company's sales increased by 1,000% over the next 10 years, going from 18% of the sports shoes market to 43% of the sports shoes market, just to give you some Shark Tank statistics there. Now, one executive from Nike said how the company, at first, wanted to come up with a new and better slogan than just do it every year. But they couldn't. They just couldn't top this one. Just do it. She, this executive said that customers sent in letter after letter telling them how three simple words inspired them. Just do it. Well, it resonates with our innate sense of the importance of doing the importance not just of knowing the right thing, but of doing the right thing. We saw that importance displayed, what was it, a week or two ago, with the chants during Governor DeWine's speech in Dayton. People started chanting, do something. Just do it. It's a powerful message, not just in the realm of physical fitness, but in all of life. We find the importance of doing all throughout the Bible. Perhaps the most famous part of the book of James is what's in front of us today. Talks about doing. It says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Don't just hear it. Don't just preach it. Don't just know it. Just do it. Well, as important as it is to do and not just to hear, I think God has something different, deeper for us than just that three-word three slogan, just do it. Something deeper for us. We get to see that as we read the most famous verse in James within its larger context. So if you're not, turn there, take a copy of God's Word, and find James chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 19 to 27. If you're looking at the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, it is on page 1011. James 1, verses 19 to 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, 
he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is God's word. Friends, as important as doing is, it's not the emphasis of this passage. Like it will be in the rest of James, doing is not the emphasis, it is the evidence. Doing is not the emphasis, it is the evidence. The emphasis is on receiving the word. We can sum up the whole process something like this. Condense everything into a main simple point during our time. Doing the word comes from a heart that receives the word. Doing the word comes from a heart that receives the word. Christians so internalize the gospel that it is the natural overflow of our hearts. So we're going to see how this process works, how it's deeper than the slogan, just do it or practice what you preach. We're going to see that process unfold in three steps. First step, the main command, receive the word, verses 19 to 21, dealing with the main thing James wants his readers to do. Second step of the process, we'll clarify what receiving looks like. Receiving means doing, verses 22 to 25. And then finally, doing means real life. Some concrete examples close out the passage, verses 26 to 27. So as we head into our time in God's word, I pray that God shows, shows us what it means to follow him, to love him, to have hearts transformed by him so that we walk after Christ in humility obedience, and love. So first stage of the process of living out the word is receiving the word. Verses 19 to 21. Let's read that again. Verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So remember that James was a leader in the church of Jerusalem. And he's likely writing to those Christians who were in Jerusalem, but were forced to leave their homeland because of the persecution they were facing for their faith. So small wonder then that James begins his letter by talking about persecution. His readers were enduring trials at that time. So he's encouraging his readers to remain devoted to the Lord, trusting that he's working in them for their good, even during their trials. Trusting that God is all good, all the time, never changing. James has the heart of a pastor. And as with the heart of a pastor, he not only encourages Christians not to give up during trials, but as a heart of a pastor, he has a loving concern for areas of their lives where their devotion to the Lord is under threat. These areas of their lives reveal an inconsistency between what they say they believe and how they are actually living. So it's in this section here, James 1, 
19 to 27, that he really touches on the core of that inconsistency problem. That is that they are not showing their devotion to the Lord by living out the word. In the rest of this letter, James is going to flesh out the different ways this inconsistency problem displays itself. But within this first step of the process of living out the word, of doing the word, we can see a problem and a solution. So James starts off by saying, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. There's a problem there. Now, you may be reading that and not see it right away because James doesn't come out right and say, hey, guy, he doesn't lift up the soot. He's like, well, here's your problem. No. James, since James has to tell them to do these things, though, wouldn't that imply that they are not doing these things? So, there's a problem. What is this problem? Well, just figure out the opposite of what James is telling them to do, and that's what they were doing. Instead of being quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, they were slow to hear, quick to speak, quick to anger. They had problems relating to one another. Later on in the letter, he's going to talk about other ways that problem manifests itself. Next week, we'll see that problem manifests itself in playing favorites. Later on in chapter 4, they're going to be fighting and quarreling. But now here, quick to speak, slow to listen, quick to anger. Now, we know what these qualities look like in real life, right? We, we know the kids who shot up their hand even before the teacher's done asking the question. I love watching Jeopardy and seeing the contestants try to click the buzzer as fast as they can. We know the people who are always talking and don't seem to let others get a word in edgewise and always are interrupting, never letting a person finish a thought. Maybe we are those people. We know the people who are as easily triggered as those tiny little squirt dogs, as my dad calls them, because when you step on them, they squirt. <laughs> and the people who you just look at the wrong way and they start growling. We know what these qualities look like in real life. These qualities mark all of us at one point or another, which explains why they show up in other places in the Bible, like all throughout the book of Proverbs. For example, Proverbs 17, verse 27 says, whoever restrains his words has knowledge. In other words, whoever is slow to speak. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. In other words, who is slow to anger. So this problem of being slow to hear, quick to speak, quick to anger, this goes deeper than just mere communication skills or even a general wisdom principle. You know, James could have told them, guys, when you are in a dispute, when you are arguing, what I want you to do is pause, count to 10, and then respond. That might be very good advice, but James does not go there. He goes for something deeper. He goes for the heart. You see, when we are slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to anger, we show that we have hearts that are bent in on ourselves, that are consumed with ourselves. We think about this. Why are we quick to speak? Why are we quick to speak? Is it not because we want to display our knowledge and our perspective and think that's the most important thing that people need to hear? Why are we slow to listen? 
Is it not because we're convinced that we don't need to know anything else? That we have the corner of the market for all knowledge? That we have the perfect perspective and do not need to be corrected in any other way? Why are we quick to anger? Is it not because we're convinced that the most important thing for us to do is to protect our reputation, to maintain our good circumstances for ourselves? Why do we get angry? It's the thing that when we, def- when we have to have is threatened or is taken away, we get angry. So friends, that means sometimes it is right to be angry. It is right to defend certain things. That's a discussion for another time. But our problem is we are angry for the wrong reasons, namely for self-serving ones. And therefore, we are quick to anger. So we can say a lot more about the hearts behind this problem James is pointing out in his readers of being slow to hear, quick to speak, quick to anger. But at the very least, we can say that these qualities come from a heart that is bent in on itself, that is consumed with itself, not concerned with others. And along with James, we say that the person who displays these qualities is not concerned with the righteousness of God, meaning that this person is not concerned or is more concerned with showing their knowledge and defending their cause, more concerned with that than for living the way that God wants us to live. Now, here, this is the problem for James's readers. Now, we, could, we should probably just end here, right? Because we don't really need to worry about this problem in our day. I mean, James did write this about 2,000 years ago. This is so antiquated stuff. People have moved on from this. Well, hopefully you pick up the bad sarcasm there. <laughs> of course, this problem's still relevant because people are still prideful. People are still bent in on themselves. Y'all, one area that just jumps out at me, think of our politics in this country. It seems that no matter what opinion people have, their opinion is loud. People have so much concern about being right that they won't listen to others and let other people speak. People are convinced that their opponents, that their biggest problem is that they don't know enough. So voicing what they think is the best thing to do instead of trying to figure out why their opponents think what they think. No time to do that. People complain about how their opponents are so easily offended, but they themselves are easily offended and do things to deliberately provoke their opponents. And even in evaluating this whole problem of our political discourse, we can approach it with just an air of superiority and belittling uh, the whole problem and saying, oh, we are so much above that. No matter what way you slice it, we are prideful, self-absorbed mess. So this isn't the main point of the passage, friends, but it is worth asking in brief. This problem shows up in more areas than just our uh, politics. It shows up in all of our relationships. So we need to examine ourselves and ask if our relationships show that we have a prideful, self-absorbed heart, a heart that is slow to hear, quick to speak, quick to anger. So kids, whoever, if you label yourself as a kid, 
If not, still, listen up. As you interact with your parents or with your teachers at school, do you listen? Do you listen? It's like really simple. But when, they, when a person in authority says something that you don't like, do you interrupt and try to speak up and defend yourself right away? Or can you listen and be slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to anger? Couples, it is not very hard to see how this might apply to you. Can you set aside your pride to stop talking and to start hearing things from the other person's point of view? At work, have you developed an attitude that automatically does not listen to your boss? Or maybe if you are your boss, do you automatically have an attitude that does not listen to your employees? What about here with your church family? Now, when, not if, when you don't like something here, maybe something somebody did or something somebody said or a decision that was made, are you going to try to listen and consider the person's point of view, consider their perspective, or just skip that and stew in anger? Now, this is a word for those who are being criticized as well. Can you be slow to speak and quick to listen? Quick to listen to the criticism, to try to get the nugget of truth in it, to try to hear that person's perspective. This is a word for everybody. So, this is the problem. Is it any wonder that our relationships in every area of our life are wrought with tension and dysfunction? Is it any wonder? So like we said, the problem goes beyond communication skills to a heart that is prideful and self-absorbed. So when James goes on to point out that this is a prideful, self-absorbed heart that shows itself in bad listening, in a hot temper, it does that. Our hearts do that because they are not placing themselves under and receiving the word of God. Just as the problem goes beyond communication skills and into the heart, so does the solution. We need hearts that receive and continue to be renewed by the word of God. Now look again at verse 21. It says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, several different parts you may notice here, several different parts to this command. We see that there's kind of a prerequisite, something that we have to do before the main command. It says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Now, that word put away carries the idea of changing clothes. So Jesus, friends, if you are in Christ, he has given you a whole new wardrobe. And those, those clothes are spotless, clean, without blemish, because they are his robes, not yours. And so the command is, put away your old clothes. I know, I, know you try to, I know you like that shirt that's 20 years old, and it's got all those holes in it. It's, it's kind of crusty, and it's got this embedded stank in it. Put it away. You have new clothes. We put away all the junk that Jesus died for. You can't walk with Jesus and continually receive the word and be at peace with what he died for. 
Now, every now and then, you're going to take out that old shirt and look at it. No. Put it away. We say Christians are not those who do not sin. Christians are those who have a new stance against their sin. Put it away. Now, the main action we do, we see here, verse 21, is receive. Receive. What this means will be clear soon enough, but for now, James gets into the manner in which we receive. He says, receive with meekness. Now, that word meekness here means, literally, the quality of not being overly impressed by one's sense of self-importance. Boy, do we need meekness every day. If we're going to receive God's word, we have to have the polar opposite qualities of being quick to speak and quick to anger and slow to listen. If we don't think that we need anything, if we don't think that we need to hear from anyone that we have all we need, why would we receive the word? Receive with meekness. Now, what is it that we receive? James points at the object. The object we receive is the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Do you see that? Verse 21. So back in verse 18, we saw how God used the word to give us new life, to give birth to us, basically. He uses the word to open our ears, to give us faith in Christ. After that, the word becomes implanted in us, rooted in us. Similar to the parable we heard from Jesus uh, in Mark 4, the parable of the soils. The good soil doesn't just take the seed, but that seed puts down roots and grows. So we receive the implanted word, able to save your souls. Now, able to save your souls might be a tricky phrase to end on. James doesn't communicate that only a part of us is saved, that our souls are saved and the rest of us in it. He's refer- this is a way to refer to the whole person. And it's, he's not saying able to save, he's not saying you're not saved yet. James can, in the Bible can speak of salvation in the past, the present, or the future. The predominant way James speaks of it in his letter is in the future. That Jesus will save us from the things that are to come, the wrath to come. Jesus will deliver us from. So, God, the word that saves us is the gospel. This is the implanted word. The gospel. That God acted through his son, Jesus Christ, who lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve, and rose again. So that we can be justified in God's sight, forgiven of our sins, and be brought back, reconciled to God. This is the main message of the entire Bible. This is the word that we've received, and this is the word that becomes implanted in those who have received it. So James is saying, all together, this solution, put all these pieces together in verse 21. James is saying, humbly receive the word of the gospel that's already been planted in you. In other words, be more like who you already are. You are gospel people. You are Jesus people. We don't just put away sin and receive Christ at our conversion, though that is where it begins, and it is where you must begin if you have not done it. We put away sin and receive the word as a way of life. It's a way of life. Being slow to listen, quick to speak and quick to anger, that is not the way of life God has saved us to. That is not being gospel people, being proud being consumed with ourselves. That is not the gospel way. 
receiving the gospel, that is receiving the word that is able to save, that takes humility in the first place. It cannot have pride in the first place because it means admitting that we need forgiveness, that we need a perfect life, and that we cannot do those things ourselves and need someone else to do that. And it means rejoicing that Jesus has done it. And we cling to him, not us. So what James is saying is that when we receive that, not just once, but as a way of life, then that's when healing takes place. So when pride pops up again, friends, when you take out that old shirt and start to look at it, remember that you are gospel people. The one, when you, when you are tempted to take out that shirt again, when anger pops up again, remember that the one who saved us is the one who we crucified out of our anger and is the one who bore all of God's righteous anger for our sin. So friends, the solution to the problem that our hearts are not yet free from the presence of sin is the same solution to the problem that we are guilty before God. A solution is the gospel. Keep submitting to it. Keep receiving it. Plant it down deep into your heart. Preach it to yourself every day. Now, receiving the word is the main command of the passage, which is why we spent so much time on it. This is still the first point. But James goes on to explain something important, and it's actually something he'll continue to touch on throughout his letter. Receiving the word will make an actual difference in how we live. Receiving the word will make an actual difference in how we live. When the gospel transforms your heart, it will inevitably transform how you live. James will go on to say that receiving looks like more than hearing. It looks like hearing that flows into doing. Receiving means doing. That's the second point. Let's read again, verses 22 to 25. It says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So James explains that receiving the word will produce a new way of living by setting up a comparison between two different people. Very easy to see those two different guys. Look at verses 23 to 25 and try to see this with me. We can compare what the two men look at, right? The first in verse 23, looks at his natural face in a mirror. The second man, verse 25, looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. Now, just a quick note on this. Another phrase that might be trip, uh, trip us up here. Law has a clear connection to the word, the word, the word. He's already mentioned in verse 18 and verses 21 to 22. So when speaking of God's word as law, when speaking to God's word as law, it gives the idea that it comes with rules to follow, right? But in the Bible, that word for law also carries the idea of instruction and teaching. So as parents, you want to teach your kids how to live for their good. God's law has the same kind of idea. Our Heavenly Father wants to show us how to live, how he has designed us to live for our good. Thus, God's law is perfect because he is perfect. His path is perfect. 
And so it's a law of liberty. A clue for this comes actually from what we studied in Exodus. We remember in Exodus that God gave his law to his people, not before he saved them, but after he saved them. He didn't tell them, guys, obey my law and then I will save you. He said, guys, I saved you. Now obey my law. So the law is a new lifestyle of gratitude and worship for the Lord. This is the law that gives freedom because this lifestyle is how we were meant to live. This is how the creator of everything has designed us to run. But, as we know all too well, as Christians, we know we have failed to live in this way. But Jesus hasn't. Keeping the law in our place, dying for, our, for all the times we broke it. Jesus now gives us the Spirit of God who gives us power to follow God's law. So the second man looks into the Word. He looks into the way God means for us to live as those who he saved. So back to the comparison game, all right, between these two different men. The big difference that James wants to make clear, the big difference that James wants to bring home is not the difference in what they look at, is not the difference in how they look at this thing. The big difference that he wants to bring home is what they do afterwards. So what did this first man do after he looked? Verse 24. See, after he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. The second man, what does the second man do after he looks? He doesn't go away. He perseveres. He continues, and he acts. So the difference between these two men is similar to the difference between two different students. Between two different students preparing for a test and taking the test and the results after this test. So student A. Student A knows the exact date of the test that's on her schedule. She even gets a study guide that tells her pretty much all that she needs to know to take this test. And so having those things in place, knowing the when and knowing the content of the test, she tells herself, hey, I can handle getting a good grade on the test and waiting till the last minute to study. I could just cram a couple days before. I'll be good. Now, so the, this student A goes to take the test, does well, But what happens the moment she places the test down on the teacher's desk? It's like the Thanos snap. Snap. All that information's gone. I know because I have been student A. (laughs) But then there's student B. Having no idea when the test will happen, student B is forced to study frequently, not to cram. If he's going to do well in the test, he has to do this. So what's the difference? The moment the student B turns in the test, there will be no Thanos snap. He will remember everything that he's learned because he's been with the material so much. He has internalized it. It's going to stay with him even after the test. Friends, have you so received the word that you've internalized it? That it's become a part of you? That's when you will do the word. That's when you will live it out. Now, we are very adept at deceiving ourselves to think that we have received the word when we actually haven't. 
We treat it as something to be checked off, something to get over with quickly, move on to the next thing. And even when we do take a long time with it, we still may not honestly deal with it, never really engage so that it doesn't actually impact us and change us. Receive the word so that we've internalized it. So how do we become like this second man James talks about? How do we become doers of the word? Well, we have to begin the same way as the second man began. Not just to look into the law, but to persevere, to keep looking at it, to internalize it. In other words, we must receive the word if we are going to do the word. We cannot skip the step of receiving the word and go straight to doing. We can't. If we're only concerned with doing, then we will be like the Pharisees. If we are only concerned with doing, we will be cold, misguided, and have prideful hearts. We will be like the Pharisees, of whom Jesus said that they they do all their deeds in order to be seen by others. Only concerned with doing. Only concerned with show. Only concerned with doing. We will be like the Pharisees, who Jesus said are like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly beautiful, but dead on the inside. Being doers of the word starts with receiving the word. We obey as those who know that we can't be saved by our obedience. We do the word only because we have first received what Christ has already done. We do the word as those who have received it and are in awe and love and worship our Savior that this word reveals. Out of this heart, the seed of the word grows. It becomes planted in us, and it buds into the rest of our lives. Now, before we close on this second step of the process, I want to get practical for just a moment. Let's talk about hearing sermons. Let's talk about hearing sermons. Yes, we're going to talk about hearing sermons while you're hearing a sermon. We're kind of like the movie Inception right now. So every week... Friends, we get to encounter God's word, the very words of the God of the universe. I am just an instrument to bring God's word to you. God is the chef. He makes the food. The preacher is the waiter. I want to do what I can to serve it well, but like a restaurant, while the service matters, the thing we go to restaurants for is food. We go to eat. If our food is words from God, then y'all come ready to feast. If the food is what matters, then as much as I appreciate compliments about my preaching, I want you to be impressed with the food and with the chef. So having that heart, we want to come to sermons eager to feast on God's word And with the goal, not to be entertained, but to be changed. And to be drawn closer to the Lord. Having that heart, we will take the word and plant it deep in us, and it will flow into how we live. You know, just as a a side comment, that's the goal of Wednesday night. That's the goal of Wednesday night fellowship. And so that we receive the word, and it plants down deep into us. So that we internalize it. So that in turn, we can consider ways that we live it out and do it. So yeah, I've been so encouraged by Wednesday Night Fellowship. We want you to be a part of it. Help us be doers of the word by receiving it. 
and so internalizing it that it's just a natural overflow of our lives. So lest we leave this in the abstract, lest we leave this at a vague point, James continues in this process still. We continue to receive the word. When we receive it, we will do it. We will live it out. In the final stage of this process, James goes from doing in the vague sense to doing in concrete ways. So this is our third point. Doing means real life. Doing means real life. Let's read again verses 26 to 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Again, who is James addressing? James is writing to those who are prone to fool themselves. If anyone thinks he is religious. That word religious is very general in meaning and refers to worship in its outward forms. Right? Just the general practices of worship. To put it in our terms. Just because we show up to church, crack open a Bible every now and then, say a quick prayer before a meal, does not mean that God is pleased in how we are living because there are plenty of other opportunities to mess up. It's not that those acts are not important. I don't want to belittle those acts. But our devotion to the Lord must extend beyond those acts to the rest of our lives. So what are some examples? What are some examples of doing the word? Well, James gives three. When we receive the word, when we embrace the gospel we will display that, we will, thus we will be doers of the word, in the areas of our speech, our care for others, and our overall holiness. Our speech, our care for others, and our overall holiness. Now, these aren't the only areas where we'll display this, but these especially reveal God's character. We reveal how God speaks, how God cares, God's purity. Each of these examples will show, show up again in James's letter. So first we see the example of speech. James says that we deceive our hearts about our devotion to God if we do not bridle our tongues. Now those tools, the bits and the bridle, are used for horses by riders in order to control where the horse goes. Right? So if our hearts have embraced and been transformed by the gospel, we should be able to control what we say. Our speech should reflect what's in our hearts. In fact, Jesus says the same exact thing. That out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, James gives us a test. Does your speech reflect a heart that has been transformed by the gospel and humbly received the word? How about your speech? We might immediately think of things like gossiping and cursing. Friends, those absolutely apply here. About a check for our heart. But you know, you, you, we can still sin in our speech even if we avoid those things. Next example, James gives a test of our doing of the word, whether or not we have received it. He says, visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The test here is to care for those who are helpless. Does our care for the helpless and the weak reflect the heart that God has? Reflect a heart that's been transformed by the gospel and humbly receives the word. Our care for the weak and the helpless. 
The gospel itself, think of this, friends, is God saving us while we were guilty, while we were yet sinners, and while we were helpless to do anything about this. That's the gospel. Will we reflect that gospel in how we treat other people? So we have, just to think of this practically, we have opportunities to do this here among our church family. Y'all, there are widows here. There are people who are weak here. I mean, the first step of caring them, caring for them is simply getting to know them, talking to them, and even go beyond that. Do what James says here. Visit them. Now, we have opportunities to care for the helpless in our neighborhoods and in our communities. Your neighbors, you may have neighbors who are single moms, neighbors who are seniors who live alone, neighbors who are not from here but are trying to get settled. I think one practical way we could think through this of caring for the helpless and being people who have humbly received the word is in the area of um, abortion. The area of abortion. We want to care for the helpless. We want to care for the weak and the vulnerable. First of all, we want to care for the helpless unborn child who does not have a voice of his or her own. And also, friends, we want to care for the mother who feels that she is in a desperate enough situation to consider something like an abortion. And you know, we want to care for those things in a way that is humble and loving and not degrading and belittling. As those who are gospel people, I'll study Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well, for example. Jesus can acknowledge this woman's sin and not end up degrading her and belittling her. Instead, he points to himself, and she has a new life. That's the posture we want to approach something like the abortion debate with. And more than that, now this will look different for every Christian, but we don't just want to love in word. We want to love in deed. Now, that's a criticism that's often leveled against Christians. Now, Christians talk a big talk, but they don't really actually do anything about the abortion issue. Well, first of all, that criticism is unfounded. Throughout the centuries, Christians have been at the forefront of hospitals and of orphanages. And more than that, in America today, Christians are at the forefront of the foster care movement, of adoptions. It's not even close in comparison with any other group. But still... We want to be those who don't just hear the word, who don't just believe the right things about this, but do the right things in something like this issue as well. To be doers of the word, not hearers only. Final example James gives is a test to those who think they're religious is their relationship to the world. The world is the way that the Bible often refers to the mindset and lifestyle that is apart from God. So in this sense... The influence of the world is all around us and threatens to stain our walk with the Lord. So here's the test. Does how we relate to the world reflect that we have hearts that have been transformed by the gospel and humbly receive the word? Does how we relate to the world reflect that? Now, this test is a little less concrete than his other ones. But here we can speak of we, can't, we don't have to think very hard of how the world might stain us. We can speak of our priorities, the things that we're pursuing, both for ourselves and our families. We can think of our morality and our ethics, what we think about right and wrong, the decisions that we make, reflecting the world or reflecting the word. 
We could think of something like our entertainment choices, what we like to expose ourselves to, reflecting the world or reflecting the word. The world, as one commentator puts it, is anything and everything that is at odds with Jesus being the Lord of our lives. There are many things at odds with that. Those things are everywhere and even show up as good things that we make into ultimate things. Friends, we should conclude. We all know the importance of doing. Don't just talk about it, be about it. That slogan we said at the beginning, just do it. Now, if we are going to do, if we are going to be about it, if we are going to just do it, then something about us has to change. God must give us new hearts. God must give us a desire and an ability to follow him. This is in part what Jesus has won for us at the cross. Not just the forgiveness of our sins, but the gift of the spirit of God given to our hearts, who has written God's word on our hearts so that we desire it. So we receive the word continually. If we are going to do, if we are going to be about it, then we must continue the way we began, humbly receiving the word so that it grows, so that it pulses in our veins. That's when we will be about it. That's when we will do it. That's when it will show up in real life. God, we want to reflect your love. And Lord, thank you for not just loving us in word, but in deed, the greatest deed ever of dying for those who've sinned against you. So God, would we receive your word planted deep in us, Lord. Make us humble to receive it. Make us think of you and not ourselves and cause us then to thirst for your ways so that we actually do your word because it is so internalized in us. God, give us a practical doing of your word in every area of our lives. Help us to consider how we live for you in that area. God, we need your help to do this. And we thank you that you are faithful to hear our prayers and answer them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.